Now you've just entered the, uh, the law offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker. If you've come for actual legal advice, you need to turn right around, honey. You need to get out of here, because you ain't going to get none of that. They quibble, and they squabble, and they bicker. But if you want to hear meaningless opinions, this is the right place. They got plenty of that. Stuff that makes no sense at all. They go off on tangents. It's crazy talk. If that's your thing, keep listening. They'll keep talking. Oh no no, oh no no, it's another episode of the Law Offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker. You've entered the Law Offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker. Yay! Welcome back to another episode of the Law Offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker on this May 1st, 2021 Holy cow, we've been in over a year of a pandemic, but uh, we're very, very happy to have our next guest today. His name is Mickey Burns, and he is a longtime talk show host from uh, New York City, where he's had a show on New York City Media for over 20 years, or approximately 20 years, as well as being in the television industry for a much longer period of time, probably about 40 years. And uh, he's also the author of the book, Projects to Profiles, which is a memoir of his life and uh, where he came from. And he's also going to be our fake guest attorney as we deal with our client later on the show, Dad Jokes, Pinnacle of Western Civilization. So that is our client for the day, but we'll get to that later. But Mickey, um, as a, a very experienced and well-groomed uh, talk show host, what do you think was the hardest thing about starting your own talk show? Uh, well, that, that's a good question. I guess uh, the, the most important thing was to get a network interested in airing it. <laughs> Not as easy as it sounds. Well, I don't know how easy that sounds either. I mean, did you just give them a lot of money? How did that, how does that work? No, no, no. no. I, I was at the time I was uh, interestingly, it's interesting. Uh, I was doing a news magazine in New York city. Uh, and, in each episode, we ran like a four-minute celebrity profile. Okay. So I would come back to the studio all the time and say, say to the guys, you know, I just interviewed Tony Orlando, who was on Broadway, uh, doing something on Broadway. And, and I would come back with like a 30-minute interview, which was fabulous. And I said, you know, uh, we can only use four minutes of this great interview. Uh, you know, and they, the celebrities that we've been interviewing love to talk about themselves. Uh, we should do another show, a long form interview show and call it profiles and actually profile these celebrities. Uh, so we started to do that with time Warner and we, I guess did about 12 or 13 episodes. And at that time, mayor Bloomberg was the mayor and he decided that, we needed a that he would have liked uh, to create his own network in New York City, and he did, and he called it NYC Media. And we approached the people that were running that network, and see, we already had like a season worth in the can with people like Isaac Hayes and Chuck Mangione and Darlene Love and Melba Moore, Pat Cooper. So we approached them with one season. And they were just a startup network and uh, they loved the concept. They loved the shows and they acquired us in 2002. So it's been 20 years. Wow. I have a dad joke regarding Isaac Hayes that 
you know, he and I met once many, many years ago. But we'll nice get into that later when we deal with the client. But yeah. uh, <laughs> he was a nice man. So nice. you said you were with Time Warner. Was that Time Warner Cable at the time, or was that like part of a network? No, that was that was and Time Warner Cable was a network okay. in New York City, and oh, we would do a magazine called Special Edition. Okay, which was you know you covered uh, breaking news and uh, newsmakers of the day. And then we threw in a celebrity because we're in New York, a celebrity profile, and it worked perfectly. Did and you ever interview Chef Tell? I'm sorry. Do you, are you familiar with uh, local New York celebrity chef Chef Tell? Used to no. be on PM Magazine. I probably should be, but I I, I am not. Chef you Tell, know? that rings a bell. Isn't that from like the 70s or something? Great. Yeah, maybe early 80s even. He, he made it. He was on a. I think it was called PM Magazine. That was the New York City. Because I was working, back in the 80s, I was working at Fox and, uh, you know, I was doing the 10 o'clock news. Oh, wow. And they they had a current affair was their big show back then. Oh, yeah. With well, I Maury. Think current affair. I think current affair came out of PM Magazine because I think Maury Povich, who yeah. was current yeah. affair, started in like PM Magazine because I remember PM Could Magazine. Be. And, they, and back in the early 80s, I think I was on, in Washington State at the time. Uh, my dad right. was military, mm -hmm. so I moved around a lot. But I remember watching PM Magazine. So that wasn't just for New York State, Greg. That was people. Oh, different cities had their own PM Magazines. They would be more localized. But I think this guy, Chef Teller, you're talking about, who I haven't thought about in like 40 years. <laughs> yeah. So it's like <laughs> you're bringing that up. Oh, you're making my, my teeth feel like they're falling out of my head. So but, when did that? Profiles actually started. What year was that? That's 2002? Like 99. Okay. Yeah. No. So who was there some of the early interview interviewees that you uh, were really amazed with? Yeah. The first one we did was Chuck Mangione. Yeah. Then I think we did comedian Pat Cooper. Wait, when he had Chuck Mangione on, did he just play the flugelhorn and not talk? Because that's what his music is like. There's no talking in it. And... Right. Yeah. No, he was very verbal. He was a great oh. interviewee. He actually explained to me what a fugal horn was. I had no idea. I thought a trumpet was a trumpet, yeah. but I looked different. Uh, he was a great interview. And, and I think then we had Melba Moore, Julie. B uh, oh, we had a, and, and from Staten Island was, was not easy. Celebrities to come to Staten Island to do the interview at the beginning. Oh, so so you were located on the island. Okay, that's interesting. So so what did we, you do? Did you helicopter them over? I'm sure you had a huge budget. We limoed them in from where, wherever they were in the city. And we, we, we did the initial season at a place called the Music Hall at the Snug Harbor Cultural Center. And it was the second oldest music hall in New York City next to Carnegie Hall. And it, it's a beautiful facility, and they loved it, but it wasn't easy getting them because you know they still had to uh, figure in the travel time you know if they're coming from midtown staten island from where we were that was like a 40 minute drive so they you know a lot of them didn't like that they wanted most of the celebrities that come in that are promoting something they want to do good day new york the today show serious radio and we're all in like a you know a 10 block area right so we moved our show into Times Square. We've been doing it there for the last several years. Oh, I got you. You know, the Snug Harbor Cultural Center is the name of Greg's favorite chair. I'm joking. <laughs> anyway, so 
Dad joke. <laughs> At least it should be. At the Save it for the dad joke section. <laughs> but how did you how did you persuade um, these bigger name celebrities to do your particular talk show? I mean, at the time, I, I don't know what your viewership was, but I'm sure it wasn't like um, a spanning the. East. No, no. I, I think originally our viewership was just on on Staten Island uh-huh. at, at Time Warner, just in Staten Island. Right. Uh, so it wasn't easy to, to, to get them, uh, you know, but we were doing this news magazine and I met a lot of these celebrities through my work at Fox News and also doing the news magazine. So I started to develop relationships with publicists and managers and record labels. <laughs> so when we started to do profiles, uh, we were able to get a lot of these celebrities off of relationships that we had garnered. I got it. So you basically got in with the correct people, became yeah. friendly with them, did a lot of limoing around a publicist, I'm assuming. Yeah. And once showed to Manhattan, which was very quick. You know, I mean, we we did the show for a year or two uh, from that musical, and then we moved into Manhattan. And once we got to Manhattan, uh, we had no trouble getting celebrities to come over. You know, and just to go on a completely different tack that reminded me that, you know, you were kind of born and raised in Staten Island in the projects. Yep. And somehow you wound up going to college in Missouri on a football right. scholarship. Right. I, I'm I'm just curious, like, how did that school find you in Staten Island to offer you? Or how did you find them either way for uh, I, I, to get the scholarship? <laughs> That's a good question. And what happened was when I was playing football on Staten Island at a place called New Dorp High School, uh, I had a good career there. Matter of fact, my senior year, I was the city scoring champ. So I was being recruited not only by the School of Missouri, but by many other colleges. Mm-hmm. Just happened that Staten Island had what I guess in those days would be called a scout. And the scout was working with the coach at Missouri Valley College. So he had been pushing me to go there from when I was a junior on. And and, and several other outstanding players from my high school went to that school. That's so strange. Missouri specifically targeted your high school for recruits. Well, yeah, because our high school was a perennial powerhouse in New York City. Yeah. And they were a perennial powerhouse in the Midwest. Were they like a uh, double a division double A school or they, they were trip, they were triple A. Triple A, okay. Yeah. But they were always in the top ten in the country in that division. Okay. It was a football powerhouse. Did you study journalism in college? I did. Oh, good. That was your there, degree. Greg. Yeah, I you know, I wanted to go into journalism right out of school. I want it to be what I'm doing now. But in those days, it was BC. You know what that stands for? Um, uh, before Christ? Before, before communications. Before cable. Before cable. Ah. Right. <laughs> we, we lived then. Yeah. yeah, I remember. Channels, that was it. So I realized when I about to graduate, I said, you know, uh, if I wanted to do this, I would have had to have first gone to Boise, Idaho, and then maybe to Biloxi, Mississippi, yeah, and maybe right. several years of honing my skills 
I would maybe get back to Philadelphia if I was really good at it. Yeah. So I did, you know, I was, I wanted to come home to, to the big apple. I did. And I started to teach and coach for three years before I got into my broadcasting career. You want to teach and coach football? Yes, I did. And I coached oh, okay. well. So were you working at like a high school or? I was. My, oh, okay. I started at my old high school as an assistant football coach to the coach that coached me. Interesting. So, so, so you transitioned from acting as a coach into TV at what point, what made you to finally decide to leave the coaching? It was almost by, it was an accident kind of thing. Uh, uh, a lot of the guys that I played golf with on the weekend just happened to work at Fox news. They, uh, they, they were cameramen. Uh, one guy was one of the anchors there. Golf and, rears its ugly head in people's careers again. Right. So I played golf all the time. Uh -huh. and, and I also was in the music industry and had my own band. Oh. So I'm very familiar with sound equipment. So are you a so, singer or are you a... Was. Okay. I'm a singer. What kind uh, of music was it, Mickey? I bet he was uh, a crooner. Well, I did all... Yeah. Let me on one second. Let me get my record. Hold on. He's got a record, too. Cool. This was my record back in. Can you see it? Let's see. Wow. That's yeah, Aldo Nova. <laughs> that looks like Tom Cone <laughs> you, look, you look like you were very successful at Studio 54. He did not look like he was happy that microphone, though. He was like, I, that's not going to get anywhere near my face. You know where I used to work all the time, which you'd get a kick out of I, in Danger Fields. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. It was great because they had a comedy act and then musical act a comedy act and a musical act rodney was there all the time because he would break in his new his new uh routine you know okay and if, if it went over in his club then he would use it as he went out you know on tv and things like that but it, it was a great place to perform uh the first show was packed you know the, the, you would do like a 10 o'clock show and a one o'clock show the first the 10 o'clock show was packed the second show at one o'clock there would be like five people from Idaho, half, you know, in the can, uh, sitting in the corner, have to do the same show at one o'clock that you did at ten o'clock. It was good training ground. So, did you well, ever get uh, Dangerfield to come on to your interview program? No, because he was dead by that time. Oh, I didn't realize he had died that early. Okay, yeah. it was like yeah. late nineties. I could have had he, you know, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, another thing to, with Rodney, my connection with him, it was funny because I also had a, a like a, a bar restaurant on Staten Island, which I owned with my brother for a number of years. You are like and, a renaissance man, aren't you? I guess. I don't know. <laughs> You're all over the place. Busy. But when he was doing, uh, what's the, what was his first movie, Rodney Dane? Oh, Back that's to school? Uh, Back to school? No, that was, that was the second. That was, a, I love that one. The, uh, uh, ladybugs? I don't know. Easy Money. All right, yeah. easy money. That, uh, that was funny with him and Joe Pesci. It was hilarious. But they they have some bar scenes in that movie. And it was between my bar and another bar, an old man's oh. bar. And they picked the old man's bar. <laughs> it's like one of those old lounges where all the old guys just go to die. I asked him, Ronnie, you can't put a good word in for me. So I have nothing to do with the locations, you know. Yeah, that's the kind of bar I hang out in, Matt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> those bars. That's my I menu. Have, I think that these days, Greg, you belong in those places. 
I do. <laughs> you know, like, they stop drinking almost, you know? I mean, they don't drink like they used to. Back no, that's in the true. One was drinking. Today, they're afraid to drink and get in their car. Yeah. And that's a good thing, really. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Because yeah, some they, of those guys, man, they would stagger out of those places and yes, they would. They'd get into their giant yeah. steel vehicles that could like take out a city block yes, and sometimes could. did. <laughs> so yeah. when you were working at Dangerfields, did you make any friends with anybody who became famous later? Well, you know, I remember one night, uh, I, I, the night before I was there, Ella Fitzgerald was working there. Wow. You know, and uh, a lot of big time comedians, uh, I can't even remember offhand, they were there all the time. Right. Did Ella Fitzgerald ever break the glass with her voice? Did she ever do that trick? I don't think that was for real, but anyway, she. <laughs> oh, uh, I thought it was. I saw it on TV. I it's on, it's on a, a commercial for Memorex. Yeah. yeah. Remember that. <laughs> Gee, that was Dangerfields was big league. You know, yeah. you. Yeah, that was a big league. Well, I mean, so, that means that you were a pretty talented guy if your band could play there. Well, you know, it was funny because we started out with this band uh, back in the early 70s, and we all wanted a record deal. That's why, I, you know, we had records like this. We were trying to get a hit record. Yeah. And one night at Dangerfields, somebody said to me, came up afterwards and said, oh, we love your band. Would you work our wedding? And I said, nah, we, you know, we were looking for a record deal. We don't, we're not a wedding band. <laughs> I, I said, well, maybe I should look into this, you know. And I did. And I said, oh, my goodness. You know, we worked at Dangerfields. He was cheap. He didn't like to pay his, the, the people. You know, I think we were making 50 bucks a night at Dangerfields. And you, you had know? to split it like five ways? No, no, the 50 bucks a piece. We had oh, some- okay. <laughs> everybody, gets their, everybody gets their five bucks. Yeah. And then- <laughs> That would you like to do our wedding? And and I said, no, nah, we're not a wedding band. And I looked into it and I said, oh, you know, wedding bands are making two, three, four, up to $7,000 for a wedding. So I talked to the guys in the band and I said, well, let's try it and see. So because we were like polished club act, um, we started doing these wedding showcases and we started booking weddings like left and right. And we started working with agencies I think in one year in 1987 or something like that, we did a hundred weddings in one year. And you were getting oh. like seven grand a wedding. Yeah. Well, not that I, I was going to say, know. that's a good year. 700 grand for playing weddings. Well, you know, each year, each year it got more. I mean, I think we started out making 4,000 a wedding, then no. five year got a little bit more. And then at the end of the year, it, it all came to a screeching halt because this jockeys took over. Oh, right. And that was the live music, you know. But, uh, you know, we were making a lot of money back in those days. I know you can make a career out of weddings because that's how Michael Buble got famous was he uh, performed at a wedding and that's how he was discovered. Yeah, during the busy season, I I would do five weddings in a weekend. Friday night, Saturday, two on Sunday. That's a good bit of pocket change back in the day. Yes, yes, absolutely. But it, all good things come to an end. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be the case. So, so from, time, go ahead, Greg. Are you do, were you doing journalism then, or you were just a musician? Oh, I, was doing, I would work at Fox News, like on a, let's say, a Saturday. And I would go with my PA system in the back of my uh, my station with, 
finish my job at, at, at Fox News at five or six o'clock, head to New Jersey for my seven o'clock, eight o'clock wedding that night. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. And did yeah. the guys at the news agency know that you were doing this? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was a lot of weddings for people that work there. <laughs> did you ever get to be on on your own network uh, performing no. for a wedding? Oh, that's no. too bad. No, we, we did a couple of television things locally, but not, yeah. nothing. And once you get into the wedding business, you're kind of given up. Michael Blue Blay is an exception. Yes. And once you go into the wedding, you're, then you're a wedding band, and, and you know, you're not going to get signed by Arista. That's when bands go to die, usually, <laughs> yeah. when they've given up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what happened was, as I was doing uh, the journalism and the broadcasting, that, that kind of took off. So I kind of, I, I had to get out of the band business and I did, you know, I, I transitioned into, uh, in, into hosting shows. So when did you know that you had taken off in the journalism business where you went, okay, I'm doing well now. I mean, like, I know that this is like my path. This is where I want to be. You know, I started to do a show back in the, uh, on Staten Island for Time Warner and it was called Staten Island Live. And it was just like laughing live. The difference was I wasn't interviewing Joe Pesci. I was interviewing the borough president of Staten Island, the news, com uh, the police commissioner, newsmakers of the day. Did you have your own type of suspenders that you wore too? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I was cooler than that. Uh, <laughs> oh, so you're saying Larry King wasn't cool? Fine. I like <laughs> I met him several times. I liked him very much. I think, you know, they got rid of him a little little sooner than they should have. Yeah. No, he was an excellent interviewer. But yeah. when I was doing this show, I realized that, uh, you know, that I was good at it, you know, and that people who, that I knew from Fox, who were, they weren't Uncle Joe patting me on the back and saying, Mickey, you do a great job. These were people in the business, the top you know, top people in broadcasting, reinforcing what I was trying to do and saying, Mickey, you're really good at this. Stick to it. Yeah, I watched uh, watched a number of your interviews, and like right off the bat, I realized that you really seem to be interested in the people in front of you whenever you're talking to them, and you're really good at playing off of whatever answers they give you to ask your next question. And I really appreciated that. I was like, all right, this is a guy who's got a quick mind and he's able to make people comfortable. And then I watched, I think, one of the full Joan Rivers interviews. And at the end of it, she's like, you are a fabulous interviewer. And I'm like, well, that's quite a thing for somebody like her to say who's been interviewed by, like, thousands of people. And she usually just insults people. So yeah. it's talk a double show. compliment. I talk show. So, so because I was getting positive feedback from people like Joan Rivers and, and, and Mo, Maury Povich and people like that, I said, I'm going to stick with this and be, do the best I can with it. Uh, because I wasn't getting, you know, I wasn't getting people saying to me, you know, maybe you should go back to singing. <laughs> At least I didn't say, you know, quit your day job when you were singing, but <laughs> night job. And I, I tell you, one of the keys, I think that to my success as a, as a, as a host and an interviewer has been my ability to do consistent intensive research on the people that I interview. And I don't know if it comes across on the shows that you watched, but I, I do a lot of research. And I think uh, what, when you're prepared, you can kind of hang with anybody. 
Well, that kind of comes from your news background, too. So does that mean that you went to their homes and interviewed their parents and things like that for your research? <laughs> Did you stalk them for a couple of weeks? The secret of my uh, interviewing prowess is I stole it from Edward R. Murrow, and I, I smoke got... while I interview people. That's okay. So it gives me a gravitas. <laughs> I heard that as well. Remember Tom Snyder? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Tomorrow's he... show. Uh, Did you know Tom Snyder? Did you get no, to meet him? I would have. I, but I did have Dick Cavett on my show. Oh, wow. He's great. And he was fabulous, you know. Uh, but I want, you know, the, the, the preparation thing, I kind of learned it early on, how important it was. Uh, but then I remember early on, I had Christopher Plummer on the show. And he was like the oldest guy to win an Oscar. He was like 80-something, 88 or something right, like that. Right. So, so I have this an assistant that the week or two before the interviews, they give me a packet with all the research, you know, that I would need to compile the interview. And when I was getting ready for Christopher Plummer, there was a post-it on the top of the packet. And it said, you should look at, you know, watch this link before you do your research. <laughs> so I go to my computer, the link, and it's a radio interview with Christopher Plummer from, at some small station in Ohio. And it goes like this. And, and Christopher Plummer, you know, sound of music and all award winning Oscar winner. But welcome to our WKRP in Cincinnati. Thank you so much for being on our show. Nice being here, son. The, the, the interviewer then asked Christopher two or three other questions. And the reason he was on the show and the reason he was going to be on my show was he, he was releasing his autobiography, which was like 450 pages, you know. So Christopher, after the third question, stopped the interviewer. He said, excuse me, son, did you read my book? And, and, in, and the interviewer in his best Jackie Gleason, humada, humada, <laughs> no, but I've been meaning. And with, here is a click. That was, he hung up on the guy and that was it. So wow. I said, I better read some of this book or I'm in trouble. <laughs> so, here we go. So Christopher Plummer, well, now it's my turn. He's sitting in front of me. Christopher Plummer, welcome to Profiles. Pleasure having you on the show. Would it be okay if I started off this interview reading a couple of passages from your book? <laughs> Brilliant. I, ha I have to admit, Mickey, that I did not read your book um, and hopefully you won't hang up on us. Well, you could have made could have read a couple of things and, and you know but anyway so, so he, he once i did that he said to me god bless you my son he was all in he said i don't know how you read that book 400 and some pages i said i put, put it down christopher and at that point let's say that one more time you broke up he was hooked oh got you know, it he was all in once he realized that i had read his book or thought i read his book so how much of his book <laughs> Did you actually read? I spent. I I went through. I I would. I speed read. Okay. I, I don't know if you can see behind me, but I have like four hundred books behind me of guess. Yeah, that's impressive. So I can't read every book cover to cover, but I can go through on a speed reading tempo and 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 take out the most important parts. Did you, you go to Evelyn Woods School of Speed Reading? No, I, you know I learned it from John F. Kennedy actually. Like. Huh? Like he was there with you, teaching you how to speed read? No, but I read where that he read the New York Times in seven and a half minutes. 
that's amazing. The Sunday time. That's Which, even more amazing. Yeah, yeah. So I said, maybe there's something to this. So I kind of trained myself over the years to speed. You'd, so you read like in portions. Because I remember read, reading a book about speed reading, and I got like some concepts of it. And I went, you know, I actually kind of want to digest the words a little more. Yeah. Well, what you do, you speed read, and then you mark, and you speed read, and you mark. And then you go back later uh, to the things you felt were really relevant. Yeah, I mean, that makes the daily sense. news comic section in seven yeah. and a half I was good at that. <laughs> so, yeah. what would you mark in the comic section, Greg, for reading later? Marmaduke and Dondi. <laughs> Marmaduke, and, Marmaduke and what? Dondi. Dondi. That terrible strip. It's it was like on the Prince, first page. Like Prince Valiant? It was a strip that nobody liked, but for some reason it was on the first page of the daily news comic section. It was, it was wrapped <laughs> the paper. So, it was like. Nobody likes this comic. Why do you always have Dondi on the front page? It's like none of the comics were really that funny unless you were a kid. <laughs> peanuts. I like Peanuts still. That's <laughs> where all the dad jokes come from. But anyway, getting back to Mickey, <laughs> since we're digressing. Um, so where what would you say was like the most horrible experience you've had in your career, it doesn't have to be horrible, but like the one that's most unpleasant, the thing where you went, ah, I think I might hang this all up because I don't want to deal with that ever again. Well, you know, let me go a step further. Maybe how about the most embarrassing moment? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like the pants came down. <laughs> I'm interviewing Joe Montana. Okay. Four time Super Bowl champ, right? The quarterback, Joe Montana. Did you call and him Joan Rivers by accident? No, no. I we, what happened? He was at, at a memorabilia conference in New Jersey. So his manager, who I met somewhere along the way, said, "Mickey, come to the hotel. You're going to do the interview from his suite in New Jersey. Uh, get there at four thirty. Set your lights, your camera, and at uh, five thirty, I'll be there with Joe." I said, "Sounds like a plan to me." We got there, we set up our lights, our cameras, and there was even a nice spread there, you know, of cold cuts and turkey ham and potato salad, uh, salads. I said, the class act, you know, uh, and it, we're all set. Lights are ready to go. We had, had a little bite to eat. Uh, 5.30, Joe walks through, through the door, the manager looking around the room. And the first thing I see is he's giving me this, like, come here, I want to talk to you. And before the interview even started i said oh my god uh, what, what did i do so he brings me into the corner he looks me straight in the eye and he said who ate joe's dinner well this is the entire spread of cold cuts is gone that, by the time they get there that wasn't for us that was for joe <laughs> oh my lord so it's like you and your crew ate all of the food yeah <laughs> that's you know, it's like getting your hand caught in the cookie jar. You know? <laughs> I said, oh, I'm so so sorry, you know. And I even said, that I, I don't remember the interview with Joe Montana that well, because it was a long time ago. Uh, but I do remember starting the interview off saying, Joe, I apologize for eating your dinner. <laughs> and he said, oh, I don't know if he let us off the hook. It was just being nice. He said, I would never eat that garbage. I'm going to a nice Italian restaurant after <laughs> But I guess the lesson there is never assume anything. Yeah, right. Yeah. As like, long as you didn't uh, snore all his cocaine, you would have been really yeah. picked off. <laughs> I'll never forget. You know, you 
assume that's for you, but it wasn't. So that was the, the incident where you said maybe I should no longer be in this business, or no, I've never, <laughs> you know, I've never felt that way. You know, I've always felt that uh, you know there's something bigger and more important and more interesting the next the next time. You know, you, it's almost like you know, do we've done over five episodes. And it's only like doing a term paper for each one. Right, I got you. You're covering the entire life of a person in 30 minutes. That's not an easy task. Uh, You know, that one interview, you're on to the next and to the next. And you're always trying to get a better one and to do it better. So never felt like that. Uh, And as I get older... Now I have to also consider the people that have worked for me for these past 20 years, how loyal they've been, you know, so I can't say, listen, guys, I'm going to pack it in. I'm going to go to Florida and play golf for the next five years. Well, you can do that in Staten Island. So, yeah, well, I, whatever, (laughs) but you know, I, I feel uh, that I I'm loyal to the people that have been loyal to me over the years. So I want to keep going and keep the show getting better. Uh, not only for myself, but for the people that have been loyal to me. Which of these celebrities? On your show? Oh, go ahead, Greg. Did you have Joe Franklin? Are you, do you have any Joe Franklin stories? No, I tried to get him, you know, but uh, he didn't want to leave his office over there in, in Midtown, you know. Because he his a piece of furniture in his office is why. Yeah, I know. Did you ever see his? <laughs> it's crazy. I've heard I, it, yeah. I mean, he presented, but. But he could go like in a big state. He could go right to everything he needed. He knew where everything was. He was an amazing guy. But I never did get him for the show. I tried. So which person did you interview that gave you the most surprising information? Like you were kind of going, I had never expected this from this person. If there was something like that. Yeah, I I, I think there was. I mean, Joan Rivers was one. She'd give, you'd never know what she was going to say. Understandable. You know? Uh, Smokey Robinson was, was was gave me a lot of information. Tony Orlando, for instance, uh, gave me information uh, that uh, that he told me on the show. He said, "Mickey, I'm telling you this. I've never t- told anybody this before." Well, that the mustache that, wasn't real. No, no. But he was doing his first show on CBS. Jackie Gleason was his first guest. Right? He was the biggest star on television at that time and as they were rehearsing jackie was in the audience and jackie was sitting behind tony and dawn tony's backup singers were rehearsing on stage so this is the variety show tony orlando and dawn yes that was it and jackie gleason was coming on he was the yes this is the first show jackie gleason was the and as they were sitting there in the audience and dawn was rehearsing a number Jackie Gleason made a racial racial slur about the girls. We say with both African American. Mm-hmm. So Tony couldn't give him a pass. He turned around and said, "Jackie, you owe me an apology, and you owe the two girls an apology." And with Jackie, Jackie with that said, "Who are you? You're snot nosed kid. You're talking to me. I'm the big screw you." And he got up and he walked out. The executives at CBS said, Tony, you just chased the biggest star in television for your first show. What are you doing? He said, I, I couldn't let him get away with that. So uh, CBS executives now went to scramble to, re- oh, I'm sorry, to replace Jackie Gleason. 
and Tony went to his, to his dressing room. About an hour later, uh, knock on the door. This is what Tony told me during the interview. He said, Jackie Gleason, opened the door was Jackie Gleason. And Jackie Gleason, you know, threw his script at Tony and said, is this my script? And Tony said, yes, it is, sir. Jackie said, open it to the first page. And Tony did in, in writing and said, I apologize, Jackie Gleason. Wow. Said from that day, they became very close friends because Tony stood up to him. Yeah. And uh, before every show that Tony ever did on CBS, Jackie Gleason called him prior to the show and wished him good. And so you know, Tony hadn't told anybody else the story before you? Ever. ever. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's something. Yeah. Well, I mean, stuff like that happened occasionally yeah. uh, during our 500 episodes. But I developed a good relationship with Tony, you know, to the point where I have him on speed dial. I'll give you his number. But he, uh, each time... Like I've written two books, one, this one here, and the latest is a coffee table book inside celebrity profiles, a visual journey. Mm -hmm. And time I would text me and say, Tony, could you give me a little blurb that I could put on the book on the back of the book about your some profiles. And I'm telling you, each time within 10 minutes, I had that blurb in my email. That's a good friend. That's a good friend. And I've yeah. a lot of the people I, I, I reached out to, you know, some of them didn't respond. Others responded, but you'd have to wait two or three weeks to get a response, you know? So Tony Orlando, though, you did have to knock three times. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but he's legitimately super, super guy. It's like, Tony, I want you. I'm knocking. Here you go. <laughs> but that brings so, us actually right into our client for the day, which is uh, perfect segue. dad jokes pinnacle of western civilization and essentially the concept here is that you know uh, human society has been around for thousands of years and all of our experiences have brought together really bad humor and uh, that's that's kind of what's occurred often in this particular program um, because I get accused of things a lot so I don't know, Greg, if you know this, but you know what Forrest Gump's password is? I'm afraid to ask. What it? What is it? One uh, Forrest one. Okay. Say that one more time. I missed it. One Forrest one. I. Have you not seen that movie? Yeah, I get the pun, but. <laughs> <laughs> that's well that's the an example yes. of dad jokes but but you know I, i've had this theory i've been tossing around that um dad jokes are more like gen x jokes or baby boomer jokes like they they were ones that were told back then and then as the people got older and started having kids then they became dad jokes that's mm. kind of like the theory that i have regarding word dad joke but how come generations before didn't call them dad jokes every father probably had I think Not at the time they called them little kid jokes because I think only little kids told those jokes. Yeah. And then those little kids got older. You know, this but I think nobody was funny in the 1910s, you know. I think that's yeah. what it was. I don't think there were any senses of humor until like the later decades of the Until Charlie century. Chaplin came around. Right. <laughs> he invented humor. Well, that was all slapstick. It wasn't like jokes, jokes, you know. Mm. There wasn't uh, like maybe W.C. Field started bringing it in. I don't know, Mickey, I, I don't... I hate to say your age, but I'm guessing you're probably about 10 to 15 years older than we are. 
So you might be a little closer to that. Early, early 70s. Say that one more time. In my early 70s. Okay. Wow. You look great. I thought you said, well, you I thought you said he was born in the early 70s. I'm like, wow, God, I'm really old. <laughs> so about 15 years, Greg, like I said, 15. Do you have a favorite dad joke, Mickey? Uh, 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 no. No. I want to, you know. Say that again. Comedy was not my strong suit. That is something I noticed in his interviews, Greg, is that he wasn't cracking jokes. You know, he nah. was a very serious man. He got his information. He taught those people a lesson. And then he gets out. <laughs> he's like, he's in there. He lets them be funny. So you, you've interviewed a number of comedians, though, right? I know you had Sebastian Mascalco on one and Joan Rivers. and He was great. Uh, let me think who else. I had uh, Rita Rudner. I like Rita. And, and believe it or not, uh, one day I was in the office and the phone rang and, you know, somebody in the office picked it up and then they said, Mickey, it's for you. It's David Brenner. Nice. And David Brenner says, hi, Mickey, how you doing? I saw your show. I want to be on it. Wow. <laughs> Just out of the blue. Was he like well, a, new, he was a New Yorker at the time? Was he living in New York? He had places in Vegas and a place in New York at the uh -huh. time. So I had him on. He was fabulous, you know. But interestingly, at the time, he was dating or engaged to Ty Babylonia, the figure skater. I remember her. Yeah, she was Ty and Randy was the, the duo. They were figure skating together. So he asked her after that interview if I would have her show. And I did. You know, when I would hear her name, but I always think of that song from Steve Martin, which was the King Tut song, because it was, uh, there was a line in it, which is, um, race in Babylonia, race Babylonia, I think it's like, yeah. I'm like, so I was wondering, did she get her name from that song? Was that, that was her real name. Her father was a policeman in Los Angeles. What national, is that an Italian last name? I think, uh, no, I think her father, if I'm not correct, was, uh, she's biracial. He was African-American uh, and, and his mother was, her mother was white. Huh. Wouldn't have now, uh, pictured Babylonia as an African name. Changed their names, you know, along the yeah. way for whatever reason. Right. Cause her first name would be Thai. And then it would make <laughs> you think either a necktie or from Thailand. Yeah. And yeah. And, and, and the mother might've been, might've been uh, Polynesian or something like that. Well, the Rastafarians in Jamaica always talk about Babylon. So that makes sense. You think that They're would black. be. So Mickey, uh, do you have a sense of humor? Do you, do you tell any jokes around people and around your friends? Not, not really. You know, I'm bad at it. <laughs> Remember the punchline at the time. I'm the same way. That's what I, I have a good joke, but I can't I have, tell them. I have words on the screen for it because I've got no memory. Yeah. <laughs> And of course, you know, sometimes guests that you have, the big comedians, uh, you know, sometimes they come on and they don't want to be funny. They just want to, you know, interview them about their life. You know, they don't feel necessity to, to be funny. They're like, I am not a trained monkey. You cannot yeah. make me do this. Right. Yeah. You got a guy like Frank Caliendo. He's the, the guy from the NFL impersonator of many people. Right. He, right. He went from one to the other. That's all he kept doing. I just had, uh, what's her name on the show for the third time, Marilyn Michaels. She's hilarious. 
She was an impressionist who they did a show in the 70s, The Copycats. Do you remember that at all? It but sounds Marilyn, vaguely familiar. Really? She's, you know, one of the best female impersonators. But that's all she, she went from, you know, into every question I asked her, she answered it in a, in a, in a famous character, whether it was Elizabeth Taylor or... Uh, yeah, you know, Kelly, some... maybe it's the impersonators because Kelly Endo is definitely like that too. He does lots of impersonations. That's what he he would, I'd ask him a question and he'd answer it like uh, John Madden. Right. Yeah, Madden is definitely his go-to. Madden, I think George Bush were like his two main ones. Yeah, and then uh, I, I had Rich Little. He okay. did the thing. I'd ask him a question and he, he'd answer it like Richard Nixon. Another impersonator. So yeah. were, were there any of the non-impersonators who were actually, I mean, everyone knows Robin Williams, you couldn't stop him once he was on an yeah, interview. But like Rita Rudner, uh, she's famous Las Vegas comedian. Right. Uh, she didn't crack a joke through the whole interview. Did you call her on it and say, Rita, why aren't I like you funny? Well, you, you know, one thing you learn, you can't control the way people are going to be. And you can't even control the tempo. You know, I had Eric Roberts on the show years ago. And, you know, I... He's an I interesting like guy, Eric Roberts. Yeah. You know, I, but he was very thought-provoking you know mm. you'd ask a question and he would sit back and analyze the question before he would come back with his answer um and you know it made me a little uncomfortable until i realized this is really good you know taking the time he's putting his thoughts together and he's giving great answers so you, you know as an interviewer you can't control the tempo you have to go with the tempo sometimes did you ever have a guest on who you thought was going to be really serious and was funny as hell like someone like oh this guy is kind of dry like George Foreman or something? Well, I was just going to mention yeah. it. Foreman was hell. He was great. And, um, you know, I wanted to talk, all I wanted to talk about was him and Ali fighting, you know, the jung uh, rumble in the jungle, and which he claimed. That's another thing. He told me that he felt, you, you asked me before about information that I was surprised I got from him. Uh -huh. And we talked about that. He claimed he was drugged during that fight. Drugged? <laughs> drugged. You know, they put something in his water. And and he, he said it was his own handlers that drugged him. So he's, you know, he felt he was, they were approached by other people and took money to put something in his water for that fight. Whoa. Wow. Well, I wouldn't, past, wouldn't put it past people if it actually happened. Yeah, it probably did. You know, and, and, and as I, I want, I wanted to talk to him more about the fight, his fighting career. And all he wanted to talk about was his business career. <laughs> <laughs> his grills? Yes. You know, like when I did the grills, he said, they asked me what I wanted, George. And I said, well, I have seven sons named George. Can I have a grill for each? <laughs> <laughs> but that's what he was going to get. And he said, like, three months later, he got a check for a quarter million dollars. <laughs> See, I would have asked him about that, too, because he's kind of like the ultimate dad joke who played a giant prank on all of his kids by naming them all George. It's yeah. like, why would you do that to your kids? <laughs> like, hey. you, they're all just, like, in in Braille or something. It's like, how can you tell them apart whenever you call their name? George, come here. Which one do you want? They're just right. numbers. When he did the interview, one of his sons was there at the interview. Big was guy. it George? Well, it has to be. They're all. <laughs> <laughs> so as I'm pushing him to talk about Ali, and I met Ali as well. I spent uh -huh. the day. With him. But uh, that's another story. 
but when I asked him about, I wanted to talk about his fighting career, he was more interested in business. And he said, they stopped me at one point. He said, Mickey, you know, the one thing I've learned about business, he said, as an entrepreneur now, he said, there's no such thing as a good business deal unless both parties are happy. And I thought about that and I said, you know, th that's an odd way of most people are cutthroat yeah. and they win in business, right? They're not looking to, to, to make it 50-50. They want to win. Yeah, you usually uh, hear it's the opposite. Just the opposite. So yeah. I thought that was a very unique way of, of approaching business. And maybe that's why he's so successful at it. Well, he, you know, his revitalization was fascinating to witness. Yes. Know, where he came from essentially obscurity to suddenly back in the limelight again. Yes. And he just became this really interesting character where yes. you just kind of enjoyed seeing him. You know, no matter where he popped up, you're like, oh, wow, George Foreman, he's, I like this guy. You know, yes. and, and he would was... always have this enthusiasm about him. Yes. They said when they first started, people hated him. Yeah. He, he was the bad guy. Right. He said then one night he was fighting Jimmy Young in Puerto Rico. And after the fight, he felt he had died for a couple of minutes. That his heart stopped and he, it was a hot night and he thought he was done. And he said then he, he saw God. This is what he said during the interview. And his whole life changed and he became a different person from that night moving forward. And he wrote books about it. And then yeah. everyone loved Maybe yeah, it's, it's interesting. How you have just you can have that epiphany, and then suddenly, yes. just things move in a different direction. They said uh, I wasn't even able to tell my mother that I loved her before I died, and his and his just whole life changed from that night forward. Did you have any moments like that in your own life, Mickey? No, not really. Where like no. maybe now you want to go become a boxer? Nah, <laughs> you know I look back at my life and I say, Jesus, if I had it to do over again. Uh, I would do it just the way I did it. You know, I was able to do, to do a lot of different things, be successful at a lot of different things. And most importantly, I've been happy my whole life. So I, I wouldn't change anything. You know, I look at your life and I go, I'd like to have your life too. Honestly. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> it looks like it's like a steady thing. You kept moving along with where you wanted to go. You, you created a very solid niche for yourself in yes. your area you know but there is one thing we do we are aware of that apparently is an unfulfilled need which is kind of the the ultimate dad joke to be been played on you is that you haven't been able to get tom jones come on your show and most guys are kind of at least they used to be jealous of tom jones because all their women's uh, underwear would wind up on tom jones's stage and that's kind yeah. of like the ultimate joke on dads right there but but i have met him yeah I was at Fox. We went to meet to see him. We matter of fact, we sat in Tom Jones gave us his tickets, you know, front row tickets to sit. But we went backstage and this was 1980. Okay. And uh, so 40 years later, you still haven't gotten to sit down with him. Uh, uh, but if only, he only knew. I almost had him about five years ago. Mm -hmm. And and then it, it never, I had Engelbert Humperdinck. But I never had Tom Jones. Well, he was like the poor man's Tom Jones. Yes, he was. Yeah. Interesting story with Engelbert. I think you'd appreciate this. Because doing the research, I, I read in his auto Engelbert that he had he made love to three thousand women. All at once? No, over his career. 
Oh, okay, that's good. That would have oh, been a mess. Nice. That would have been a mess if it was all at once. But I wanted it, it was true, you know. So I said, "Eng yeah. uh, is what they call him, you know." Eng, I said, "Is it true that you've made love?" He said in your book, "The Three Thousand Women." And he said, "Let me put it to you this way: less work for my wife." <laughs> <laughs> he farmed that, it out. That would <laughs> now. Tom Jones was no better. <laughs> Tom Jones. They were married that whole time. I didn't know that. What? Tom Jones was married to Engelbert Humperdinck? No, no. They were married to the same woman since they were teenagers. Both since they were teenagers. Yes. Tom married his wife of 60 years. She just passed away uh, when he was 16. Wow. And I think Engelbert was 17. And they stayed with those women their whole lives. Those are some very understanding and tolerant yes. women. Well, had the, the the credit card limit that they had, you might be a little. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some women are less tolerant even having the credit card because they want to then have the credit card on their own, knowing that they have that information about the guy who gave them the credit card. Right. Yes, but Tom is eight years old now. Tom's and what? He, Tom Jones is eighty years old. Yeah lives in in england he, he in london he, he's you know he he left la he's not here anymore but when he when i met him in 1980 we spent about a half hour with him and i, I asked him i said well, you know tom and he's really shy you know he's shy in person mm-hmm. when he gets on stage I, he totally different person and and i said uh, at the time he was working all the time and i said why do you work so hard you don't have to i mean he was already making a fortune and he and he went out and he opened up the door and the, the room was filling up and he said you know you see these people out there he said they're not going to be there forever there's going to come a day where they're not going to want to come and see me sing so he said until that day comes i'm going to give everything i have i give it 100 percent. i enjoy every moment of it and here he is interestingly you know 80 is like that was 40 years ago and he's still, you know, filling up wherever he plays. And he just put a new album out. And, wow. and he's on The Voice, in, in, in the UK Voice. He's one of the, the panel. Uh, his career has never been busier. So why is Tom Jones like your... Um, Moby your, Dick. That's right, your white whale. You know, why, why him? Why not somebody else? What made Tom Jones your fixation? Well, because I always, uh, I was so inspired by him as a singer and an entertainer. He's the reason that really I got into that career in the first place. He was my inspiration. I got you. He was, he was your hero. Have you, you ever wanted seen, women's panties thrown at you? Have you ever seen <laughs> Have you ever live in, in, in concert? I, I I've seen I've seen, not live, but I've certainly seen him perform on TV. I have a lot of respect for Tom Jones. I mean, he's got some power. He's dynamic. He's very charismatic. So yeah, I get it. Well, I, I I put him by himself. You know, him and Elvis. You know, but Tom I thought had a much better voice. You know, but Elvis great as well. And on the female end, I thought nobody was better than Tina Turner. Yeah, hey, Tina was fantastic. Um, I was a little boy growing up in the 70s. I thought Tom Jones was like, oh, that's what my mom and dad like, so he's square. And then I saw clips from his 60s TV show 
where he, like, little, he goes toe to toe with little Richard and Janice Joplin. That yeah, guy could yeah. rock and roll. He Nobody. was fierce. He was what, so good. On his show, he had Boy George. I felt sorry for Boy George. <laughs> yeah, no. he can't compete with Tom Jones. You can't compete with Tom Jones. It was embarrassing, you know. I recently yeah. came across this duet of Tom Jones and Van Morrison, and typically, no one can kind of outpower Van Morrison on a song. Oh, and then Tom there was Jones. Tom Jones who was on it, totally overpowering Van Morrison. I'm like, well, there it just goes to show you. But I always kind of considered Tom Jones to be the British Neil Diamond, in my opinion. Um, just in terms of popularity and uh, a lot of glitter on their jackets. You know, that's... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I saw him live, and, and the women were just being a frenzy over him. So who of the current crop of celebrities that are coming out these days um, are you excited about and would like to finally get onto your program? Sure, that's a good question. But I, I think Lady Gaga would be one. Yeah, she's a New Yorker. She should do it. Yes, and she's yeah. an amazing, uh, amazing talent. But, you know, I, we were talking about it the other day. There's not a lot out there that would say, oh, I, I'd love, they're great. I would love to have them on the show. Uh, I mean, back when, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, stables of performers were unlimited. You know, like, like do you know who the first uh, act that's going to be performing at Madison Square Garden when the pandemic is over now? You know, it's almost over. Who do you think the first act at the garden is going to be in concert? Uh, Justin, Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber. Okay. Yeah. I mean, am I going to, I have no interest in Justin Bieber whatsoever. Yeah. Right. Why? He's your friend. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's, I mean, you got Tom Jones, you got Elvis, you got, <laughs> you got Justin Bieber, you know, Justin Bieber should be driving, you know, their limo. <laughs> you can't tell jokes we have learned <laughs> that's true that, I mean what do you do? is he a singer I don't know what he does who is that Justin Bieber what does oh, he do got it. Uh, yeah he's he's a singer uh, but he made his fame on YouTube is basically where he came from yeah. you know? and then I think he got more famous from like breaking various laws and his tattoos or something. So when you hear something weird is uh, Justin Timberlake, my girlfriend, made me watch a concert of his. It was on cable. Ex, that's ex-girlfriend, Greg. Yeah, ex-girlfriend. <laughs> and um, a girlfriend at the time, and uh, I gotta say, he was quite a performer. It was something else, and I don't like Justin Timberlake, but some people can still perform. Like I think, uh, I think he's very good. He's one of the real good ones in the yeah. younger Gen X, whatever the years. Uh, but he's a good singer. He's also a good actor, and I think he's a pretty nice person. That's what I've heard. Well, have you, are you able to get like maybe any of the cast or crew from um, Saturday Night Live to come on your show? I would think that they would be key for your demographic, possibly. Well, well, yeah, I mean, Davidson. Uh, I used to work with his mother. Oh, yeah, he's right out of Staten Island. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, I just had Billy Porter because, you know, he's huge now. And uh, I have the, you know, the Broadway people I was getting consistently, but that's shut down now. Oh, right. Yeah. So much is shut down. So do you, do you have Davidson li lined up? Cause you know, Stan yeah, Allen, he, he needs to come on your show. Matter of fact, I was just talking to the mother recently. What happened was 
he uh, a girl an obsessive man broke into the mother's house because uh, he was living with his mother right and then, uh, and they had to get arrested so he moved out because of that incident yeah because i thought he was never going to leave his mother's basement yeah 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 right so he buddy <laughs> place right near the staten island ferry a place called Bay Street landing very nice did you, did you ever get to interview a uh, patty lapone patty lapone lapone no. <laughs> sorry i slipped no 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 as i said the biggest one i had was billy porter who's now the rage of broadway I have to say, I have no idea who Billy Porter is. Right. Yeah. Well, Billy Porter is the star of the popular TV series Pose. You okay. know? Okay. No. Right. <laughs> World man. He was the one uh, best actor in a musical for his lead, Kinky Boots. Which oh, kink, was, kinky Boots, I've heard of, yeah. Was Cindy Lauper's music, and he Got was best, one best actor on Broadway for that role. But he he's a big star. He does New Year's Eve on Channel Seven or whatever it is from New Orleans every year. Got it. Well, Back actually, to- it reminded me. I think I had heard somewhere that you had had Howard Bloom on your show not long ago. Matter of fact, he was one of the first as we were coming back from the pandemic. Got it. Yeah, we actually just interviewed him last week. And uh, he became like one of our very favorite guests that we've had. He's amazing. He's a fascinating fellow. Um, now, did you interview him in person? Yes. Okay, was so the, it wasn't was, uh, zoomed through pro- no, for profiles. Right, okay. Right. But it was again, you know, what we do is, I think we do good in person, in studio uh, episodes. We did not like the Zoom feel because everyone is doing. You're doing it. Yeah. And I compete with you because that's not what we do yeah ours is this way man we have we have another co-host who wasn't able to be here today he's in florida so this uh this works well for our particular format we definitely would like to like somehow change the quality of the streaming at some yeah. point but you know that's kind of the nature of the beast these days right but, uh, yeah. but anyway i think that um I was, we were going to ask Howard Bloom a question, which, and I don't know if he did this when he was on your show. Was he wearing a shirt that has had his name tag on it? Yes. Yes. Did yeah. you did ever you ask him about that? Cause we forgot to, and we really wanted an answer to that. I don't think he's got any other clothes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he has one shirt. You're saying black shirt. Is it not? Uh, yeah, I think so. His black shirt yeah. with his black shirt. Bloom over, uh, I think it's right in, you know, in yeah. the shirt. Yeah. That would be a very different answer than I would be expecting. The answer is that's my only shirt as opposed to <laughs> I keep it there to remember who I am. I can't imagine <laughs> having 10 of those. <laughs> oh, I could. Yeah. <laughs> I could see they're like organized by day too, like one every day. There would be one shirt. Did he a lot of good Michael Jackson stories? Uh, we didn't actually delve into the Michael Jackson area. We um, we kind of did with his whole life story for the most part, going all the way up to when he had his illness, um, and we just ran out of time at that stage because we could have talked to him for days probably. You get and a word wise. We found our ways. We found our ways in there. You know, there was. Yeah. It's definitely. I I I did it enough 
research into interviews that he had done to go, okay, these are the moments where I could ask specific questions. He's actually a pretty good, he's pretty good at allowing that to occur too. And uh, he did let us go off on our tangents as well. And he was very polite in that regard. He was telling such good stories that I didn't really want to say anything. I just wanted him to keep spinning his yarns and telling me yeah. stuff. He was the, he's the real thing. Yeah, but if you're like strict to like a half an hour format, I can imagine that would be like a hair puller where you're like, well, okay. Let me say this. The episode moved. <laughs> there weren't many lulls in the action. No, it's like he's got, he's definitely, I was like, this guy's definitely trained as a publicist because of all the interviews. It's like he's got his specific message that he wants to get across and he will communicate yep. that and uh, he will get that to happen. Um, but I think we've probably come to, to your time now, but it, I do have one final question, which is, I've heard that you always ask what somebody's desire for their legacy to be whenever you I end hope, the show. I hope you do. That's been the last, and I've got some great answers and it's all in my book from the projects to profiles. And I'm going to read to you what I wrote in the book about my what I hope my legacy will be. That was your question, yes? Definitely, mm -hmm. yes. I'm going to read what I put. But before I do that, my favorite answer that of all the ones was uh, that I got was from Chuck Barris from The Gong Show. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is that before your time, The Gong Show? No, no. no. We're very familiar with Chuck Barris. Yes. I love uh, The Gong Show as a kid. Chuck Barris is like one of my heroes. Fascinating man, right? Yeah. So I said, Chuck, what do you hope your legacy will be? Without hesitation, he looked at me and said, Mickey, I want it written on my tombstone. Gonged at last. <laughs> gonged with the wind. So, gonged, so he ends up dying like six years after that. And I read in the Times, that's that's he got his wish. That's what's on his tombstone. This is perfect <laughs> because he ended our show with a dad joke. Did it? <laughs> you just did it. You made the dad joke with the epitaph. Right. I can remember off the, the top of my head was Jesse Ventura. Okay, I bet he was fascinating. I, I've had him on two or three times. Okay. And he, what do you hope your legacy? He said, "I want to be the last man on Earth without a cell phone." <laughs> I resisted that for so long. I was like, I don't want that long of a leash on me, and I finally got one. Have one. All wow. Right, let me. Well, in my book, uh, I was asked, what do you hope your legacy will be by a reporter? And I said, I just hope that after producing 500 episodes over 20 years, that I've entertained people, educated people, and most importantly, along the way, perhaps we've inspired people to be better. Do you get stopped at like supermarkets or anything? People go, hey, you're Mickey Burns. I see your show all the time. Yeah, especially in the subway. Yeah, especially in the subway. That's yeah. your demographic. His demographic are just subway riders. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you hang holding on to somebody like six inches away from you. I <laughs> the other night. It's like, do I know you? <laughs> you know, so I, the subway would be number one, you know, and they say, oh, I love that interview with Deepak Chopra. You know, that was great. Um, and on the street, a lot of times, you know, you stop at a red light waiting to cross, but you're closer to people, you know, and they don't feel awkward about saying they might know you. Yeah. So, yeah, those are the two that happens all the time. But that's also telling me that we must be doing something right 
people are watching the show. That's that's what it. That is great. So, what is the future for you in television? I know you're the president of a network, uh, Quest Communications. Um, where do you go from here? Well, I, I, I here, I guess at this point, we continue doing what we do. We love doing it. We're on, you know, we're on a network that has a viewing demographic of 20 million potential viewers. And everyone with a TV set in a 50-mile radius of New York City gets our show. It's, it's, that's the number one market in the world. So uh, the only thing that, that would be, uh, I guess, a, a bigger accomplishment would be on a national network. Are you, do you want to do that? I'm not sure. Because I, I, I love what we're doing now. It's fine with me. Uh, we're in, in New York, so it gives us access to the, the biggest stars. Um, and I, I, I like the network. It's, it's a great vehicle for us. It sounds like you've definitely like, fit where you need to be. So. I know. Yeah, well, I want to thank you very much for coming on, Mickey. We totally appreciate it. Um, yeah. I love your law firm. <laughs> well you know next week we have a very special episode we're doing what we're calling our pizza show and the pizza show has to do with the fact that uh, when we first started this which is almost a year from now um, yeah. almost our anniversary is next month and um, we were making about a penny an episode or something like that from the platform we were using the podcasting platform we're like alright well and then Greg was like I could use a pizza so we decided we would finally like when we made enough money from that, we'd buy Greg a pizza. So our pizza show, we finally have uh, collected enough cash where we're all going to get pizzas at the same time and eat it. So we're letting our listeners know that the pizza show is finally coming. Edward R. Murrow never did that, did he? That's right. <laughs> my show one, uh, one to your viewers. Please do. Anything else you want to promote? Your yeah. other book as well. Go ahead and take that time. Projects, The Profiles, a memoir by Mickey Burns. Uh, and you can get it on barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, walmart.com. And my latest book is a coffee table book. Same way. It's on all the same, uh, you know, same platforms. And the name of that book is Inside Celebrity Profiles, A Visual Journey by Mickey. Do you, do you have a copy of that book to hold up to? or Do you want to give me two seconds? Yeah. 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 Feel get free. Oh. Grab that book. One, two. Time's up. You're done. That's a dad joke. <laughs> let's see all the books. Let's see what he's got in his house. Okay, he came back. Ooh, fancy. It's all glossy. It is. But, you know, what we did was, I'm going to tell you real quick what happened. Uh, during the pandemic, I, I've had the same photographer on set for 20 years. And during the pandemic, I said to him one day, I said, how many photos have you taken over 20 years? He said, I have no idea, but I'll let, I'll go into the computer. I'll let you know tonight. And he called me back. He said, Mickey, I have 15,462 photos. I said, That's oh. a lot of photos. <laughs> so I called the book. And within a week we had a, a contract to do a, a coffee table book, <laughs> which we did over the last summer. Well, you know, you have a mutual publicist with Leland Sklar, who's a very famous bass player. He's been with like thousands and thousands of recordings. And he did a similar coffee table book. I don't know if yeah. you know, but it's all pictures of people flipping him off. <laughs> okay. <laughs> not, not quite the same insights, I think. But uh... well, yeah, what I did was 
I, I didn't know how to approach it. So, so I, I broke it into categories, you know, such as the singers that we've had, the mm -hmm. actors, each chap, the comedians, the athletes. And that's how we came up with the idea for the book. You think about doing like the least interesting to the most interesting? You don't think that would go over, over well? I hope people, I guests. <laughs> Well, again, I want to thank you very much, Mickey, and uh, I, I wish you great success on your books. Everybody should get those. Again, he's out there on Amazon, Walmart. You can actually go to his house and ask him for one. He might give you one. You and can I track him down. But this, you guys, it was been a pleasure being on your show. You're really good at what you do, both of you. And uh, it was a pleasure uh, spending some time this afternoon. Great. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we finally Thanks, got you Mickey. on. This has been the Law Offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker. Yes. And okay. see. You've left the offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker. It's over. It's over. It's time for you to go home. It's over. It's over. Go away now.